I am eternally and forever grateful um, that you all have given me this opportunity, just allowing me to be able to share what the Lord, what the Lord has said in his word with you all. Uh, thank you uh, to the leadership of this church, and I'm just grateful to be a part of this. Um, last, last week, Andy uh, led us through chapter one, and through this series covering Jonah, we're going to walk through his narrative and try to see and excavate some themes and some precepts that may apply to our modern-day context. And so as we begin, um, I'd like to implore you to uh, hear God's heart on today. Allow me to decrease and let the Lord's word increase. Now, I'm not Andy, if you hadn't noticed, or Buster, or Stephen. And so in the faithful um, African-American tradition, I intend to exposit the word with specificity. And so I ask that those of you who are excited to have someone who's different in the pulpit this morning to lend your hearts and your minds today to hear the voice of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you've lived or grown up anywhere in the South, uh, around the Gulf of Mexico, then you know something about the impredictability of the weather, the unpredictability of the weather. One can arise early to find the temperature outside set steadily at about 55 degrees in the morning and then 85 degrees in the morning. Not many of you can forget the tragic events of April 27, 2011, when an EF4 tornado violently paved its way from the west of Tuscaloosa all the way, 80 miles even so, to Birmingham, taking the precious souls of 60 people and injuring over 1,000. If you, like I was, were anywhere near the path of the storm before the weather, inclement weather ensued, then you probably remember that it was not a cloud in the sky, and it was peculiarly hot that day. Um, or we can just look at this past Thursday. There was a commanding storm that ripped through the west of Alabama, traveling north to the southern parts of Birmingham, leaving thousands without the comforts of electricity. From the volcanoes erupting in Honolulu to Guatemala, we know something about the unpredictability of the weather. But that's the nature of the weather. It's, it's unpredictable. It doesn't matter how many Doppler radars we have or satellite images we can conjure up. The weather often seems like it has a mind of its own. But we know there is a God who's working behind the scenes. And yet, Wes, the weather isn't the only aspect of life that we can anthropomorphically describe as having a mind of its own. Similarly, Someone else from our passage on this morning falls into this category of unpredictability. And it's interesting because it's the last person many would suspect, at least in that time, to disobey God with such vehemence with his own made-up mind. This text is tailored to teach us a little bit about Jonah and tailored to teach us a little bit more about ourselves. So I'd like to speak to our modern context by examining a few themes highlighted in this particular passage of scripture on this morning. Of course, 
with this section in the sermon series being subtitled Jonah's Repentance, we have to examine this dynamic dialogue he has from the belly of a great fish. But there's something extremely significant to take notice of before Jonah's prayer. Last week, Andy walked us through the events of chapter one, but for the purposes of today, I like to sum those events up in the quaint phrasing, namely phrased as Jonah's repeated relocations. And these relocations come to us in a few ways. Jonah goes from Jerusalem to Joppa, a distance of about 40 miles, and the seaport city of uh, Joppa makes another appearance in Acts chapter 9 with verse 37, dealing with another follower of God who's also known to be unpredictable, namely Peter, the one who confessed Jesus to be the Christ and then turned around and denied him three times. So Jonah, don't be worried. You're not alone here. Uh, There's also this traveling from the port city of Joppa to the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And then, of course, from the middle of the sea to the middle of a great fish. But these first two sequences of relocation reveal to us Jonah's egotism and how it has affected and infected his view of himself and his view of God. So, Buster, these first two movements can't be described in a way that depicts God moving Jonah. No, these first two plots of repositioning are more accurately described as Jonah moving Jonah a move of Jonah approved by Jonah. Now, how egotistical is it for the prophet of the Lord to make up and declare for himself where he shall go against the direct imperative of the Most High God? Now that I think of it, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Perhaps he has implored the words of that philosopher, Rene Descartes, uh, cogito ergo sum, transliterated to mean, I think, Therefore, I am, which runs in stark juxtaposition to those words in the Bible we find that says, I am what I am by the grace of God. But isn't it that type of sophomoric, vain, egotistical expression of God that often leads us today away from the Lord's voice, away from his leading, away from his truth and away from his service? You know, the kind of egotistical expression that leads us away from what God has clearly laid out in Scripture. This seems eerily comparable to our westernized expression of a consumeristic and compromising Christianity. There's something very anemic and abject about the way we make Jesus and his commands optional. You know, we can take it or we can leave it. I'm sure you've seen it before, all those who seek to make the Bible anthropocentric, which means man-centered, with phrases like, live your best life now, or money cometh to me now, making it all about us. Is it any wonder why people, and so many of them, are led to worship a God that's made up from their own imaginations? That's something called cognitive dissonance that we see displayed here in this passage. You have the prophet of God who speaks the truths of God, and yet he lives out an untruth. He says, I serve God, and I follow God, and I'll, I'll say whatever God has for me to say, but I won't live it out completely in my life. That's cognitive dissonance. Have you ever known someone to tell a lie while maintaining this, uh, this, this belief that they are a truthful and honest person? That's cognitive dissonance. So before we get too loose in our critique of Jonah, perhaps we ought to examine 
for ourselves, ourselves in the scope of what the Apostles' Creed describes as the universal church, for that's what we claim to be a part of. For while we're over here in the West claiming to have persecution to mean uh, not being liked at work, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are facing real persecution across the globe. Yet here we have a knowledgeable prophet of the Lord, the mouthpiece of God, who has made up in his own mind to disobey the direction and voice of the Lord. And let me park right there and pitch a tent to just inform you that having more knowledge of God does not mean you're better at obeying God. Knowing more about God does not lead us closer to obeying the voice of the Lord. I think the quote goes that more knowledge without the Spirit is willing to obey the Father just makes one a more clever devil. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and your mind, and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Church, we don't simply uh, go where the wind blows us. We don't follow the horoscope or we don't just take life as it, whatever life throws at us. And we most certainly don't follow our hearts for chapter 17 of Jeremiah verse 9 specifically says that the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Brother Rick, the last thing we ought to do is trust in ourselves because that's what Jesus describes as building on sand. Trusting ourselves over what God has said is tantamount to forgetting exactly who God is. And that's what we see happening here in this text. Jonah, the prophet of God, the person well-versed in the truth of God, has made up in his mind to say, I'm going to outrun the presence of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, there are a number of appropriate and accurate words that we can use to describe the nature and character of our God. One of these words is omnipresent. Why don't you say that? Omnipresent. That simply means that God is everywhere at the same time. I know you know that already, but the old church mother from my context would say it like this, that God is so big that if he turned around, he'd bump into himself. And so here you have the mouthpiece of God, knowledgeable of God's truth, which is his omnipotence, saying to himself, I will flee from the presence of the Lord to Tarshish. Now, Psalm 139 and 7 says, it asks a rhetorical question. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And according to Jonah, facetiously, I mean, the answer to the question of where can I go to escape God's spirit is this city of Tarshish. Essentially, Jonah's action, his inaction, and his wrong action make a huge statement about what Jonah thinks about himself and a huge statement about what Jonah thinks about God. This isn't just a relocation of Jonah by Jonah. It's also a relocation of God by Jonah. See, right now, because it's not convenient to Jonah, God isn't omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He hasn't read 1 Chronicles 28 that says the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. See, right now, because it's not convenient to Jonah, God's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He hasn't read Psalm 33 and 6 that says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By his very voice, the stars were put into the sky. See, right now, because it's not convenient... To Jonah, God is not eternal. He's not the everlasting God, as Isaiah chapter 40 describes him to be. See, and that's what we do. Whenever we uh, willingly sin against God and against one another, we forget that it is he that is the righteous judge 
of the living and the dead. It's when we allow the guilt of sin to hang over our heads that we forget that he is the loving father who has sent his son to pay the cost to be the boss over our lives. And that's the end result, brothers and sisters, of theology done on the fly, theology done in isolation, theology that's convenient, theology that's anthropocentric, man-centered, The motivation behind many modern-day churches, these emerging churches, is to give people Jesus without all of the theology. But uh, Albert Moeller, while teaching at the Expositor Summit, he says it like this. He says, you can't have Jesus without theology because Jesus is theology. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became Flesh. See, there's an image, Andy, and a likeness of Jesus that has been that people have in their heads. And it often stems from whatever they've heard through the grapevine about them, whether it's true or it's false. Many of us would be shocked to find out at how pictures of Jesus, most of which are propaganda, have shaped the way that we view and see him. But brothers and sisters, I only get the Jesus of the Bible when I get the Jesus of the Bible. So what has happened, Grayson, is that we have cultivated a corrupted characterization of Christianity by capitulating to a carnal account of Christianity where people are saved and they know how to die, but they don't know how to live. And it results in a disobedience to God and justification of such by a false description of who God actually is. And I pray that we never become an assembly of believers that buys and sells people their own wish dream of a God who caters to what we think is convenient. You know, a God who only favors certain groups of people or a God who only uses ones with type A personalities. Can I call Moses to the witness stand? He says, God, I can't lead these people because I have a severe speech impediment. And God says, Moses, who made man's mouth? Or perhaps I ought to call Jeremiah to the witness stand. Jeremiah says, God, I can't go. I can't speak this word because I'm too young. And God says, zip it. Don't say you're too young because it's God who controls. It's God who sets up and puts down. It's God who leads us before down our paths towards his mission. And that's why as Christians, we don't elevate an agreeable personality over an authentic power or charisma. We don't elevate charisma over character. We don't elevate style over substance. But there's a hint of this going on in Jonah's disobedience. I mean, Jonah's saying, why should I go to Nineveh? Why should I subject myself to people who are torturing other people? I'd much rather keep on with that trend that we see earlier in the Old Testament where he brings a word of prosperity to Jeroboam. You know, he's like, hey, Jeroboam, we're about to expand the territory. You know, house real big, car real big, navy real big, everything real big. I'd much rather keep in context with that type of word, that type of message. And that's kind of how sometimes we're tempted. You know, today we've gotten so sophisticated, especially as preachers and leaders, we don't want to offend anybody. Everyone seemed to like the word of increase that Jonah brought to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam says, I'm going to head out to Tarshish and I'm just going to wait the Lord out so I can draw a few more fans. May I call the members of the church at Corinth to the witness stand? Here in this church, you had people... Uh, 
identifying themselves and building self-esteem based on who they followed. Some saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos. And some even had the audacity to say, I follow Christ. And so Paul writes this letter and asks a rhetorical question. He says, okay, is Christ divided? Was Paul the one who died for your sins? Oh, I see. Uh, Paul was the one who was raised from the dead. He says in chapter 1, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It was God who took what was low and despised to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast not in their bank account or what side of town they live on or how many members of their church attend or what songs they sing in the worship service or their clothes or or their height or what kind of car they drive. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Maybe you find yourself on this morning running away from the willing obedience to the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're challenged to, you know, find your identity only in Christ. Perhaps it's getting more and more difficult to police your fleshly desires. And I want to encourage you to remember that it was God who chose you for fellowship. It was God who sent his son to die on the cross. And that's encouraging on this morning. And so we see Jonah's repeated relocations. But we also see Jonah's reviving reorientation. It's a reorientation towards God, towards history, and towards himself. And it reminds me of those genius words from that genius ebony scholar, Howard Thurman, who says everyone needs a sense of God, a sense of history, and a sense of self. See, Jonah had clearly lost sight somewhere along the line of the God who had been proving himself throughout history, and with such an abandonment of theology came a false sense of self. But I'm encouraged when I read Jonah's prayer because he takes accurate assessment and he takes ownership. Look at verse 4. He says, I have been driven away. The NAS says, I've been expelled, but you can't get around how well the King James Version says it. It says, I've been cast out. But look at verse 5. He says, the water has encompassed me. It's closed in over me. It's threatened me, as the NIV says. He's taking accurate assessment. He says, the great deep has engulfed me. It has surrounded me. The weeds have wrapped around my head. He's looking around at the consequences of his own situation and describing them. He's voicing them. He's confessing them. He's acknowledging them with specificity. But he doesn't just take accurate assessment. He takes ownership for his wrong actions. He says, look at verse 2, it's my distress. I'm raising my voice. And it's important that he says my voice because what, what's, in, what's important is that something I notice is that for the entirety of chapter 1, Jonah, the prophet of God, never said a word to God. He spoke to himself. He spoke to the mariners. The Bible even says that he stayed in the fish for three days and three nights. And as chapter, one of, chapter 2, verse 1 says, then... After three days and three nights, then he opened up his mouth and began to speak to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's not be that type of stiff-necked. Let's not sit in the consequences of wrong action. Let's not wait for things to become dire and destitute. Let's not wait on the wrath of God before we decide to change and follow his leaning. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm the one who has descended. It's It's my life. 
that's here. He's taking ownership. And it's here that I'm reminded that one of the greatest events in missionary history took place in Shantung, China, in the early part of the 20th century, between the 20s and the 30s, you know, to be exact. It's known popularly as the Shantung Revival. Anybody that's been to seminary or been to Bible college, you probably have read the story. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. Dr. C.L. Culpepper, one of the participants one of those greatly affected by the events that happened at the Shantung Revival, when asked if he had been filled with the Holy Spirit, he recollected that he was afraid to share what he experienced because he was afraid that he might have been thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention. So he just decided to keep it to himself. But as he gained courage, he notes that when he met those Asians, they began to pray, not for two days or for three weeks, but for four years. They prayed every single day for the power of God to fall on that country. And I can park right there and pitch a tent and share with some of you who've been praying for about four or five days. You've been praying for six weeks, and now you've got your lip poked out because God hasn't answered you the way you thought he would. You may have to pray for Four years and year after year and after year and after year. And if the answer doesn't come, I promise you, God will sustain you until the answer does come. So what happened was when they were in one room and they had dispelled all of the strife, all of the bickering, all of the division... They were in one room on one accord. Dr. Culpepper recounts that he must have startled the other missionaries because his head hit the floor. Boom. He says that he felt as though he had fallen right into the arms of Jesus. And I quote, human words and man's mind cannot understand nor explain what I heard and saw. The experience is as vivid as if it happened yesterday. The Lord became more real to me than any human being had ever been. He took complete control of my soul, removing all hypocrisy, shame, and unrighteousness, and filled me with his divine love, purity, compassion, and power. Suddenly, it dawned on me what a wonderful privilege it was to be a Christian, one to whom such unbelievable power is committed. Then I grieved because so few of God's children ever experience the full extent of blessings available to them. He says that I started laughing with uncontrollable laughter because I was filled with such joy. And then right after that, I was filled with grief and lament and started weeping uncontrollably because I felt so unworthy to be known by God in this way. And that's when revival and reorientation and repentance happens. As long as we come into prayer or corporate worship or Christian community or gospel community or DNA groups as if God owes us something, revival cannot happen. It's only when we come to God recognizing our utter wretchedness that we can join with the choirs of the old black church shouting, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee. There's no other help that I know. If thou withdraw thy spirit, whither shall I go? And that's the kind of reorientation that God requires from his children. One that says these words, as Andy quoted to us a few weeks ago, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. So we've got Jonah's repeated relocations that leads him to a reviving reorientation. But there's also a reverberant reiteration of God's truth. He says in verse 6, you have brought up my life. I can't take the credit, God. It's you who've brought up my life. He says in verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now that word vain idols, it really means empty vanities. The word in Hebrew is hevel, an emptiness. 
What are empty vanities? Next time you go to the gym and you see guys in the mirror flexing their trap muscles like this, those are empty vanities. When you feel an insurmountable, an insurmountable amount of pressure and anxiety because the Joneses next door have added another piece onto their house, that's chasing empty vanities. When you can only build your self-esteem based on how much money you make or the size of your church, that's an empty vanity. And Psalm 115 gives us some key insight on the residual effects of chasing after empty vanities. It begins and says in verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, watch this, are silver and gold and the work of human hands. Listen to the residual effects of following empty vanities. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here's the key. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that's what we're seeing with Jonah. Although he has ears, he's not hearing what the voice of the Lord is saying to him. Although he has feet, he's not walking in the direction that God has told him to walk. Although he has a mouth, he's refusing to speak the precepts of God, the judgment of God, the, the, the grace of God to these people because they don't look like them. He says, the, uh, Psalm 115 says, they do not make a sound in their throat. And let me just send a cautionary tale to those of you who have become so reserved and so stoic in the element of corporate worship. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. The Bible is inundated with instruction to, think, to do things like clap your hands and shout unto God with the voice of triumph. When Miriam and the children of Israel come out of the parting of the, de of the Red Sea, you know what they do? They shout and they bust out into psalm. So the Bible is inundated with these instructions not to put on something that's foreign to human nature. They're saying do exactly what you would do when you're cheering for your favorite basketball team, your favorite player, anything you're emotionally invested in will result in an outward and external response. Now, I'm not here to castigate anybody who's a reserved person, but I'm just saying let's, let's measure the way we reacted when Tua threw that touchdown to win the game, and let's couch that and measure that with how we sometimes come in here when we think about the grace and the mercy of our God. It's not about trying to elicit some type of response to say whether or not you're saved, for I'm not preaching the gospel, anything other than what you've heard, but our God is worthy of what David gave, which was an undignified praise. But getting back to the text, a reverberant reiteration of God's truth, verse 9, Jonah gets right to it. He says, salvation is from the Lord. And that's the reason why you and I are here on this Sunday morning. We don't just come here to get 
supercharged for the week. We don't just come here to high-five and drink coffee and discuss whether LeBron's going to the Lakers or what team he's going to. We don't come here to, you know, uh, high-five and chest bump. No, we come here as living witnesses to and thankful recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. The moment that we forget about the centrality of the gospel is the very moment we'll begin to sing and preach and teach about the centrality of self. I know everybody in here is sinless and you want to portray yourself to be as wonderful as a Sunday morning breakfast, but I'm here to tell you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And with all the saved and holy spirit-filled people in this room, I know that there are at least one or two people who know that God has saved you from a lifestyle that you would have chosen for yourself, for not his grace and his mercy. Okay, perfect people, y'all be quiet. But I'm talking to folks who've read the Bible, who've read about Abraham, who lied about his wife, and Jacob, who was deceiving people pretty much all his life. Or what about Moses, who killed a man and ran away from the punishment? Or how about Peter, you know, the one who found himself constantly acting brash, cutting off someone's ear, seeking to get all the attention. The point I'm trying to make is that God puts us in position to just follow him without judgment, preconceived notion, or anything else that would hinder us from following God's mission. So we've got Peter, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, these guys who display this duality in their faithfulness to God, and yet Jesus says this, I still want to have fellowship with you. I mean, just a casual look at the word of God will reveal a ragtag band of people, and that's one of the things I love about church. You can't pick who God's going to save. <laughs> so we have Jonah's relocation, his reorientation, which leads to a reiteration of God's truth. And then we have Jonah's rededication to God's mission. Look at what he says right here in verse 9. He says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice. What I have vowed, I will pay. And that's the kind of response it ought to elicit from us. It's not anything deep but a recognition of your need for God's grace gives you a motivation to extend that grace to others, to share God's gospel message with the lost. We see rededication. We see reiteration. We see relocation. And we see a reorientation. But what's, what blows my mind is Jonah's remarkable recommissioning into God's service. Chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Some of your versions say, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. I can pause right there and just give celebration. Thank you, Lord. Despite my stiff necked, my pride, despite my disobedience, despite my fleshly desires, despite me being consistently turning away from you, despite me choosing the path of death when I run away and leave myself, you bring your word to me again. 
And that's the nature of God's grace and his mercy is that he's there at the bottom of the staircase willing and ready for us to walk up the staircase with him. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so in his compassion, God extends the opportunity to repent of selfish living and, and selfish thinking to all of mankind. Sometimes God's nature, his grace, and his mercy, it could offend our sense of justice because, you know, we like to put labels on people. We're all guilty. We like to decide who's worthy and who's not worthy of receiving this message, who's worthy to come into this church, who's worthy to speak God's message to us. But as Bonhoeffer says, my Christian brother, no matter where they're from, is the bringer of the message of salvation to me. I need my brothers and sisters to speak a word of God's mercy and a word of God's grace, a word of God's correction. That's the importance of community. Thanks be unto God that despite our ignorance, despite our blind spots, despite our racism and bigotry and prejudice, despite our, our just overall sinfulness, despite our anger management issues and despite our selfishness, God brings his word to us again. And so if you're here on today and perhaps you've lost sight of this, perhaps you are feeling the weight and burden of your own sin, I'm not talking about a healthy conviction, but a, a sense of overwhelming guilt. Know this, that God in his grace and mercy has extended to each and every one of us an opportunity to turn around, to repent, to acknowledge, to take accurate assessment, and to take ownership so that we can walk into his arms and be filled with his compassion, his love, and his grace. Let us pray. Father God, we are just grateful on this morning. We appreciate you extending more and more grace to us, God. We thank you, God, for showing us our own frailty, God, showing us how we stand before you, making us aware, God, that we have failed to live out your commands in the, in the best way that we could. And we thank you, God, for your son Jesus on today. Yeah. Father God, we just thank you for allowing him to be the Lord of our lives, God. We ask you even today, God, to lift up those who are heavily burdened, God. Encourage them on today. Help us as a church family to be welcoming. Help us as a church family to be wise. Help us to just communicate Jesus in the fullness of God that he is. Help us to see him as the full expression of the hypostatic union, God. Help us to see him as fully God and fully man, able to fellowship with us, God, but also to make atonement for us, God. Lord, we just love you on today, and we ask you, God, to help us to walk this out. As we go through this sermon series, help us to write these words on our hearts. Help us to be glad and thankful to be in your service and in your kingdom. Help us to have our own reorientation. Help us to recommit ourselves to your service. Help us to find important what you find to be important. Mold us, God. You are the potter. And we are the clay. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.